We have got three small readings this morning. The first two are from John 19 on page 827 of the Pew Bibles, 28 to 30 and 38 to 42. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And now from verse 38. Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who'd come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now the reading from Romans is on page 862, verses 1 to 4. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Amen. Uh, if you've been following through the Romans series that Alistair has been talking, uh, taking us through, then you will be well aware of the various arguments that, and explanations that the Apostle Paul goes through to give a thorough explanation of our faith and our certainty of salvation. We've considered the role of the law, the role of God's grace, and the slavery of sin without Christ redeeming victory in our lives. Last week, Alistair shared the passages in chapter 7, where Paul describes the continued battle that he and all Christians face with the sin that surrounds us, even though Christ has won the victory uh, for us. And that present battle between our, our worldly selves and the new creation that we become in Christ Jesus. 
And the Apostle Paul speaks like a man who's exasperated. He's in exasperation, you can feel him call out in his turmoil, Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then Paul answers his own question with confidence and saying, Praise be to God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So chapter 8 begins with a positive affirmation that there is no condemnation in Christ. And Paul explains that this is because of Christ's life-giving spirit that is given to each of us through who, for those who call Jesus their saviour. And so there are three options for the way forward then as we consider this wonderful news. Option one is that we could go on go full circle and misuse the victory of Christ. Just as Paul has had to defend the faith from those who have said, because we are no longer in the law, we can keep on sinning, or because God's grace grows the more we sin, it's good that we keep on sinning, so too someone who isn't serious about having a right relationship with God might say, well, if there's no condemnation for me, then I can do whatever I please. That we are free from condemnation is to say that we are free from the consequences of sin and the condemnation of the accuser. The second option is to know this truth yet find condemnation clinging to your heart and allowing it to linger in your lives, restricting the goodness that God has for us to receive and to give to others. And the third option is recognizing the fullness of the power of this life-giving spirit and living in Christ in everything we do. So today I want us to consider the second and third options, looking at the struggle with condemnation that can linger in our own lives, in contrast to there being no condemnation of any sort in our lives because of Christ's love, life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit himself. And as we consider the types of condemnation uh, that we are to be free from, let me begin with this image. Uh, I've had a pile of logs in my uh, orchard lying there for a long time. Uh, and I've always been meaning, this isn't actually the pile of logs. Uh, I thought of this image after I'd cut them all up. So, so last weekend, long weekend, I started the long weekend with um, getting my chainsaw out and finishing off the last hour's worth of, of um, splitting them all up. And that was great. Okay, uh, I finally found the time to um, get that done and look forward to just re- um, putting them away, stacking them away for the winter. Um, and it's not just the matter of getting them uh, cut up and, and completed, but also, just as importantly to me, to finally clean up that area of the property. Condemnation can be like a pile of logs in your heart. They take up room. And the longer you leave them, the harder it becomes to clean up. One or two of them will sink into the ground and you have to prise them out so they don't become a hazard to the lawnmower. The grass grows over and around the pile and makes it an eyesore. And you find it just sits there and takes up room that could be productively used by the Holy Spirit. And there are three types of condemnation that should have no room in our lives when we are saved by Christ. There's self-condemnation, condemnation from others, and condemnation as retaliation to others. So I suspect that self-condemnation uh, almost always begins through condemnation from others 
all the lies, the fiery arrows that Satan, the accuser, throws at us. And such lies we turn into our own thoughts and self-condemnation. Sometimes Satan tries to imitate God in many ways possible. And so just as Jesus is the word of life, so too Satan will use words to attack us and deceive us. There might be things like, in our minds we might say, I've mucked up again. I'm not worth it. How could I be forgiven for that? There's no way I can see to make this right. Self-condemnation is weighty. And if you can feel the weight of self-condemnation upon you, a really good way to remove it is to join in with someone else and pray over it. And if you need to, continue praying over that self-condemnation until it is, that lie is completely gone. Then there's also condemnation from other people. It feels at this present stage that we are living in a time where a condemning spirit is prevalent in our society. The media and the voices heard in the media, some by leaders and some by self-proclaimed experts, have instigated this to a certain extent by trying to shame, humiliate, divide and segregate individuals and communities. It's been worrisome to see how often the media have picked up, jumped into um, a situation and made a headline, and then later on we find that the facts aren't quite right. And in that happening, often we jump to um, the wrong conclusion and condemn a situation or a person too. That same condemning spirit was prevalent in the time of Jesus too. Consider the woman seen as unclean but risks condemnation when she goes into that crowd just so she can touch the cloak of Jesus and be healed. Or the man born blind. His disciples asked Jesus, whose fault was it? Whose sin was it? Was it the man's sin or his parents' sin? Again, this, this feeling of condemnation which just literally comes out with unintentionally saying it. And Jesus releases another man from condemnation. Not only does he heal the paralyzed man physically, but he also says to him, your sins are forgiven. In doing so, Jesus receives condemnation from the teachers of the law. Several times they look at his, him healing people and as far as they go as far as saying that he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons by the prince of demons. There's a condemnation, these religious teachers of the law were casting upon Jesus. They condemned John the Baptist's disciples for their fasting, and then they condemned Jesus' disciples for eating. It is this attitude that demonstrates a condemning spirit within society that we can easily be part of. How might we unintentionally, or still knowingly, place a condemning spirit on others? Have we, through our own words, or our actions, or our thoughts, now our thoughts that are often detected through our silences and inaction towards someone or a situation, how do we bring a spirit of condemnation upon someone else? Consider this. When Jesus healed that paralyzed man and told him that his sins were forgiven, the silence and lack of celebration and rejoicing from teachers of the law about that healing made their thoughts very clear and noticeable to Jesus. So too, our lack of support to one another can show our attitudes in our fellowship. 
And then there's also condemnation uh, as retaliation. The condemnation of one another grows when we decide to reciprocate or retaliate. We're throwing condemnation back to those who condemn us. Jesus explains this in his teaching in Matthew 5 and alludes to what his life-giving spirit looks like in us in such situations. Jesus said, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. When we have the Holy Spirit working in us, we can respond in this way. Not because we are weak, but because we are strong enough to demonstrate God's mercy and goodness, even to those who would persecute us. That which people may use to intend harm can be used by the Holy Spirit to bring God's goodness both to us and our accuser. This echoes uh, what Joseph says to his brothers after he's um, spent years in Egypt and he's reconciled to them. He has been a slave, imprisoned and condemned. And at the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20, he says this to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Imagine that if we live by the Spirit, what lives may be saved. Before we move on to considering the role of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, let's just pause and I would like to lead us in a prayer um, just over any condemnation people might feel uh, in this time and age. Lord, we come to you and we know that we are we're fighting a spiritual battle in this world. But we know, Lord, that you are more powerful than anything else. And you give us your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I just pray now, anyone who has felt self-condemnation, has felt a lack of worth, I pray now for your Holy Spirit to come and, and to build them up, to remind them how much they are loved by you, how precious they are. And Lord, I pray for the, against the spirit of condemnation in this world. I pray you protect us from condemnation, both individuals, but also this church. And Lord, I pray also that you forgive us if we have uh, retaliated to those who might hurt us. And instead, Lord, let us live by your teachings, live by your spirit, and bless those around us. And show this community um, what your Holy Spirit can do with a body of people in the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, and if this discussion so far has, has raised um, thoughts about the condemnation in your life and you want more prayer, then hunt me down after the service or find someone you, like, uh, you are happy with praying to and, and just pray with them about that uh, to overcome any condemnation from the enemy. Moving on to verse 2. Paul tells us of the freedom that the life-giving spirit gives us. The Holy Spirit who is given to us as a guide to guide us, to teach us, and to have power within us. The power of the life-giving Spirit reminds us that freedom given to us is a freedom from the power of sin, not the freedom to keep on sinning. So let me also give you an image uh, of what the life-giving Spirit in our lives might look like. Now I'm not going to use a generic uh, image, which often we might use. Instead, I'm going to use one that might need a little bit of explaining. 
but you, hopefully you can also find and see in several points of the Bible. Having the life-giving spirit living in you is like waking up in an upstairs room. Let me explain what I mean by that through a, a little family story. Uh, years ago, my nana, Ivy Kelly, lived with us for the last few years of her life when she couldn't manage um, the daily routine by herself. Age was catching up on her. A few days before she went to be with the Lord, she woke up with a brightness in her eyes uh, and a freshness of life in her spirit. And she said she'd had this most wonderful dream. She had dreamt that she had just woken up in an upstairs room. And it had felt so glorious and refreshing. And that freshness of her spirit from the dream was alive in her as she woke up in our very ordinary home. We didn't have any stairs or anything. It was symbolic to the family of her soon going to be with the Lord. And the renewal of life uh, that those who believe in the Lord Jesus receive. We see this idea of people waking up in an upstairs room connected to the Spirit working Miracles on God's chosen people throughout the Bible. Um, can anyone think of situations, Old Testament, New Testament, where you hear of people waking up in the upstairs room? Samuel. Yeah, yes, Samuel, hearing um, God's voice. Any others? Old Testament situation. Think of um, others who are brought back to life. Yeah, yeah. He was in the tomb, I think, wasn't he? Um, but if you think about in the Old Testament, there are two prophets who uh, rose someone back to life in an upstairs room. The names are quite similar. Elijah and Elisha. Yeah, uh, both raising up a child to life. Um, and then in the New Testament, there's one uh, I've got to share with you. Uh, and that is uh, the story in Acts chapter 9. And it's the story of uh, Dorcas or Tabitha. Uh, in fact, I, was asked, I think it was Faith I was asking about ideas, uh, if she could name anyone. And she thought about someone who was in an upstairs room who went down um, and then was raised back to life. That was a guy who fell asleep because the sermon was too long. Um, <laughs> I'll try. We're not upstairs, so that's okay. Um, but in Acts chapter 9, let me share about the story of Tabitha. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. It means gazelle, it means beautiful, and I think um, energetic. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time she came Ill, became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Leda, so they sent two men to beg him, please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes Dorcas had made for them. But Peter asked them all to leave the room. Then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented her to them alive. The news spread through the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. 
Here we have this wonderful story of the life-giving spirit bringing Dorcas back to life. But also, the evidence in the life-giving spirit working in Dorcas before that miracle. We read in that first uh, verse, um, she was always doing good things for others and helping the poor. The power of the life-giving spirit that we receive in Christ also wants to work in us for others. Therefore, he gives us the fruit of the spirit. And there in Galatians, we get that list. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All things that counteract condemnation. And then, look at this final sentence. There is no law against these things. Sounds like Paul might have wrote this, which of course he did. You see, when we remove the pile of logs in our lives, or as the parable says, from our eye, then it makes more room for the fruit of the Spirit and more room for where we may use the spiritual gifts that are given to us. Again, in Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he writes about the spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can each uh, help each other. And then he gives us a list of the gift of wisdom and knowledge, healing, uh, prophecy, gift of tongues and interpretation. And he says in verse 11, it is the one and only spirit who distributes all these gifts. And then many of us neglect to spot three more spiritual gifts that Paul adds to this list. Namely because Paul takes a little bit of time to explain them for the rest of the chapter. And then we have this break of a chapter in between. You see, the list continues after Paul explains these gifts further. And at the end of chapter 12, Paul says, But now let me tell you about the greatest spiritual gift. In fact, I'll mention a couple of others, faith and hope. But the one gift that lasts forever is the greatest gift of all. It's love. The gift of love. Everything about the gift of love contrasts fear and condemnation. Romans chapter 8 mentions the Holy Spirit, Numa, 19 times in this passage. It's, um, it's in fact once every second verse, I think. Uh, and the closest um, other chapter which covers that is the one we've just read, 1 Corinthians 12 to 7, uh, 12 7 to the end, where it talks about the Spirit. Once every three verses. Anyway, um, the Spirit is mentioned this number of times in Romans 8. And we learn about the fullness of the Spirit at the most climatic image of condemnation in history. When Jesus, the Son of God, was condemned to die on the cross for you and me. You see, from our, uh, this reading today, from in John, we hear about how Jesus called out to his father, it is finished. And then we are told he gave up his spirit. I think this means much more than simply the point of death. The Gospel of Matthew uses the phrase, released his spirit to his father. And here we have the work of the Trinity. The spirit is made ready to be made available to all in Christ, including the church, Christ's body. The release of the Holy Spirit was going to give a whole new way of life for all of creation. 2,000 years later, we simply can't comprehend or even realize the spiritual change that occurred in creation because of the Son of God dying on the cross and then rising again for you and me. 
What happened on the cross was cosmic. What more, we are now living in a time when God is revealing his love through his life-giving spirit and is calling you and me into partnership with him. And this was God's plan all along. It wasn't plan B because the law couldn't save us. It wasn't plan B because Adam and Eve were deceived and sinned against God in the Garden of Eden. This was plan A because God has always longed to have a real, full relationship with you. And the church, warts and all, is part of his plan. Jesus says on the cross, I have completed my mission. And now, through his life-giving spirit, he calls us to continue the next phase of that mission. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were living in a society that condemned Jesus and his disciples. They were secretly following Jesus for fear of what others would say and do to them. When Jesus died on the cross, they put aside all their fears and boldly stepped forward to declare their relationship with Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea demonstrated his faith in Jesus by asking for his body and preparing it in an honoring way for their culture. Nicodemus was there too. He's changed since that night. He secretly went to talk to Jesus and heard about how he could be born again. He's grown from inquirer to an advocate to disciple, modeling for us our journey to know Christ too. And in a matter of days, these two men were going to wake up to see and hear the news of how death and condemnation had been overcome for good. As you journey through life and grow in faith, recognize the removal of condemnation of all those things and realize the presence of the Holy Spirit ready to act in you as part of God's cosmic plan. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for your sacrifice on the cross for all mankind. But right now, I thank you for salvation for each one of us who are here today. Thank you for your gracious gift. And Lord, I thank you that um, as we journey through life, we grow and we learn and we understand a little bit more about you and we long to have a closer relationship with you. Remove the things like condemnation and the lies which stop us from receiving the fullness of that relationship with you. Help us to look after one another and to join together to overcome lies and deceit. Help us to look to see how we may serve one another and look after each other. And Lord, as we do that, I pray um, that we really sense your Holy Spirit. In fact, today, Lord, I pray for a, a double portion like Elisha got of your Spirit upon each person here, that they may rejoice and praise your name and they may serve you and, and let your, their light shine to others in this community in this day and age. In Jesus' name, amen.